Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's wonderful to be back with you. This is my third time in Greeley's, my wife Sharon's first time. So really glad she can join me today in this weekend. Um, we've thoroughly enjoyed our time with you and getting to know you better and just celebrating really the unity of mind that we have in so many things with theology, philosophy of missions, philosophy of ministry. And brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, after being in many churches around the world, uh, Grace Church Greeley is uncommon. And I say that not just because of our agreement on matters of theology, but because of the men leading you, uh, the pastors here. And as Travis mentioned, just our meetings yesterday and throughout the past few days, uh, just hearing and sensing their love for the truth, their love for the Word of God, wanting to get things right biblically, asking hard questions, uh, and sensing their love for the Lord, love for His Word, but also love for one another as pastors, their care for one another. That's very uncommon today. And so, brothers and sisters, you are a blessed church, and we are privileged to be a part of your ministry in Geneva, Switzerland. As we think about our lives, and we all are involved in various ministries and jobs and at different stages in life, we ask, will my life count for anything? Maybe you're young and you're, you're growing, you're in school, you've got the whole, your whole life ahead of you. Maybe you're currently in the workforce, you're saving for retirement, or you are retired. We all come to this central question, will my life have any eternal value to it? You may say, well, I'm born again. I've been baptized. I'm a faithful member of this church. I read the Bible every day. I am faithful to evangelize as I can. I'm a part of groups in this church. I'm here every time the doors open. One of the most sober warnings for us in Scripture is that we can do all of these things But yet before the Lord, we are nothing. You can do all these good things, but it profit you nothing. In fact, you can be offensive to the Lord. I'm not talking about disqualifying yourself through some kind of sin. I'm getting back to the fundamental issue of why you do what you do. What is your motive behind how you serve the Lord and however you do? Specifically, does devotion to the two greatest commandments drive you? And what are they? What are the two greatest commandments? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What is your motive? We can even escalate the argument from an individual level to a corporate church level and say that if a church does not practice love, that it truly is an abomination before the Lord. And some people say in church, well, all, the truth is all that matters. We share the truth. We're strong in the truth. Well, brothers and sisters, the truth is not all that matters because we are to speak the truth in what? In love. And so we turn to passages like Revelation 2 and look at the church of Ephesus, and we see that Christ is threatening to close the doors, despite them having good theology because they lost their first love. And so you see that love is critical not only in your life, but in the corporate life of the church of Christ. 
Someone rightly said, love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. So with this in mind, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We will only look at verses 1 through 3 today. And the theme is the effects of not having love. The effects of not having love. Beginning with verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, as we enter this text, we always want to look at the context. Why is Paul writing these words in this particular space? As we look at chapters 12 to 14, we see that Paul is writing about spiritual gifts, not just describing them, but describing abuses of the spiritual gifts in the first century. What kind of abuses? People wanted to be up front. They wanted to have the flashy gifts. They wanted people to look at them and admire them for their giftedness. They were more spiritual. So over and over, Paul is telling them and telling us that you're getting it all wrong if you think that is what gifts is all about. Well, what is the purpose of gifts? Throughout the book of Corinthians, Paul tells us that they are for the common good. Chapter 14, verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Chapter 14, verse 26, let all things be done for building up one another. That's what the gifts were for, not for self-promotion, self-glorification. So it is here in this chapter of love that Paul is striking at our motives why we do what we do in the local church. Do we serve out of love for God and love for people, or is it curved in upon ourselves? As we look at this text this morning, I really want to point out three things to us. Three aspects of your ministry that may be applauded by men, but are an offense to God if you do not do them out of humble love. So the first aspect of your ministry, we will say, is your speech, your speech. Let's notice verse again, verse one again. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So we think about this text, there's really no wonder, is there, that Paul chooses first this gift of tongues. What an amazing gift to have in the first century to be able to speak in another language without ever having studied that language. For those of you that know more than one language, you're studying a different language, you know the struggle to be in a different culture, to speak another language. How wonderful it would have been to be able to do this, not only speak in another language, but God speak through you in this other language for the benefit of the body of Christ. Who would not want that gift? What is the first thing Paul says in verse 1? Even if I, 
even if I. Notice he doesn't say even if you or even if we. He's drawing attention to himself here, his high position as an apostle, and saying, brothers and sisters, please listen. Even if I, as a, as a high apostle who has seen the resurrected Christ, one called into ministry by him, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do it without love, even I, as an apostle, what? I would be an annoying sound. This is what we call the argument from the greater to the lesser. If this is true for the eminent apostle Paul, then surely it is true for the rest of us non-apostles. What about the rest of verse 1? Some are contending that he is saying here that the tongues of angels are indicating some kind of a separate uh, language for angels that we can speak in tongues. And this is debated by theologians. This is completely besides the point of what Paul is saying here. And it's argued by some charismatic, our charismatic friends today, that to, to try to validate what they are doing. Uh, and many of them are recognizing what they're doing is not human languages. Well, as we kind of step back and look at the, at the New Testament, there's absolutely no explicit argument to support that point. So as we look at what Paul is saying, we have to ask, why is he mentioning this? Why is he talking about the tongues of angels when every time we see the gift of tongues being used in the New Testament, it is of a genuine human language? Well, in context, and I think we'll see this as we go on in verse 2 as well, I believe it is hyperbole. And what is hyperbole? He is exaggerating to make a point. He is saying not only me as an apostle, speaking the tongues of men, which is very common in the church, the Corinthians understood that, and they understood that it was human languages completely distinct from what was happening north of Corinth in Delphi when they were doing uh, false tongues. They understood this is true human language, but Paul is saying not only that I could do that, but I can speak in an angelic language. He is using hyperbole to use the point that even if I could do that, my voice, just the sound of my voice, would be an irritant. So he's going to an extreme here to make the point. Now we have to ask a fundamental question as we are approaching this topic of love, and that is how to define love. What is love? We have songs about that, don't we? How to define it. We love fried chicken. We love pizza. We love our wives. We love our church. We can use love in a variety of different ways. And in many languages around the world, it's hard to really pinpoint how to define biblical love. I want to give you three points how to define love. And not only good for yourself, good for your marriage, but teach these things to your children, to your grandchildren. What does love do? What does love look like? Biblical love. Number one, love is putting someone else before yourself. You could put it in the way you sacrifice for someone else. Number two, we don't add if-then conditions to loving people. And we can add caveats to that and say, well, what we're not saying is if someone's in sin, you just overlook it. We're not saying that. I'm saying in the sense of if-then conditions like, well, if you're nice to me, then I'll be nice to you. Or I'll mow the lawn if you do the dishes. But if you don't do the dishes, I'm not mowing the lawn. Those are conditions. 
But love doesn't talk like that. Love treats others like it wants to be treated. It is faithful to someone else regardless of how it is treated. Those are two critical elements, and a lot of people stop there. But I think there is a third critical element to love that we need to consider as Christians, and that is we sacrifice for others, put them first, without if-then conditions, with joy, with affection. That God does not want want for us to love begrudgingly. Yeah, I'll let you have your way, and I'll sacrifice for you, but I'm not going to be happy about it. That's not going to be be pleasing to the Lord. Uh, He loves those who joyfully give of themselves and sacrifice for others. And this really mirrors God's love, doesn't it? We sang about that today. We heard about that from the scripture reading today, that God has loved us and shown his love to us through the gospel. How so? Well, as we began the service this morning, we recognize our sin. We recognize our guilt before the Lord, that none of us are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You might say, well, I've never killed anyone. I've never committed adultery. I'm not really that bad of a person. Well, just consider, how many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden? One, they ate the wrong thing. And consider your life, even from childhood. How many lies have you told? How many times have you stolen? How many times have you had bitterness and anger to someone else? How many times have you lusted after someone in the secret place of your heart? And so as we begin to think about those things, conviction hits, doesn't it? That we are not guiltless before the Lord. We all stand condemned. That's bad news. We have no hope apart from God because He is a God of love. And He has shown forth His love while we were undeserving by sending His whole only Son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a, the Virgin Mary by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be our perfect representative to take the punishment that we deserve upon Himself. He is the second person of the divine trinity. But when he became incarnate, he had to be truly man. Why? To be your perfect representative, to understand your weaknesses, temptation. But he also had to be completely, truly divine, didn't he? Why? To be the perfect sacrifice for sin, life for life. And so he lived the life that you and I could not live, and he died the death that all of us should have died. And so as he bled on the cross, what is the Father doing? Do you ever wonder about that? Why the cross? You talk to people in secular cultures, and you ask them about the significance of the cross, and it's like, well, I believe that a man died on a cross 2,000 years ago, and I believe that, I go to heaven, that makes no sense. And so we have to explain the cross, don't we? That is, Christ is on the cross, Almost as if in the Old Testament where the priest lays his hand on the head of a sacrificial animal to symbolize the transference of, that, of sin to that animal before it's killed. That is what the Father is doing on the cross. As Jesus is hanging, the Father is not turning away. The, the Father is not turning away and weeping over what is happening to Christ. He is laying upon Christ the sin of all who would believe. He is crushing Christ in the words of our song this morning and of Isaiah. His wrath, and as the song said, his rage is being poured out upon Christ for 
those who would believe. An eternity of punishment that you deserved is compacted into three hours. Imagine that. Imagine what Christ went through. That is no ordinary death. So we understand why Christ bled, as it were, great drops of blood. It wasn't that he was just dreading death. Many Christians throughout history have gone victoriously to their death. He was dreading those three hours where the Father is pouring out wrath upon him for the sin of his chosen ones. And so as he dies, he is buried for three days, and then he is raised again to show that the Father is pleased with that sacrifice. And then he ascended, didn't he, after 40 days, and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he will return to judge the righteous and the dead. And so what is the good news part of that? The good news is, brothers and sisters, friends, if you have not turned to Christ and faith and repentance, you can do that even now. It is a free gift. We are commanded, you repent, you turn from your old life, you turn from your sin, you turn to Christ in faith, submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And he promises you, even this morning, that he will save you. He will cause you to be born again. He will cause you to become a new creature, being united with him by faith alone. And that's really a beauty of the gospel, isn't it? That we can be saved by faith alone. You don't have to worry your whole life. Have I not done enough good things to earn my salvation or keep my salvation? Because Christ has done it all for you. You simply receive it as a gift so that God gets all the glory for your salvation. This is what our great God of love offers all of us this morning. So how does God meet these three criteria of love? Has he sacrificed for us? Absolutely. The Father has sent His Son to die as a sacrifice. He came to serve, not to be served. Were there any if-then conditions? Well, you seem like nice people, but you need to clean up your lives before I send my Son to die for you. Now, what does Romans 5 say? Christ died for His enemies. And what about the joy aspect? What does the author of Hebrews say? That Christ went to the cross with the what set before Him? with the joy set before him. And so you see that those three elements of love must always take place to be glorifying to the Lord. And then once we believe, the Holy Spirit of God, is, who is the, the spirit of love, is poured out into our hearts that gives us the ability to love. Because of your identity with Christ, you have the ability to obey. Christians can never use the excuse, I just can't, or I just have to do this. No, because Christ, the Holy Spirit as well, gives you the ability to do so. And so it is no wonder, is it, that, that love is a distinguishing mark of Christianity for Christians. Jonathan Edwards preached a series of sermons which was published uh, on 1 Corinthians 13. It's called uh, Charity and Its Fruits. And listen to the words he says about love. He says, love is a root and spring, and as it were, a comprehension of all the virtues, and therefore must undoubtedly be the most essential thing, or the sum of all that virtue which is essential and distinguishing in real Christianity. So now we come to the final part of verse 1. Paul describes what he would be like if he spoke without love. And what does the text say? He would become a noisy 
gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, for those of you that might be a little older, you remember the gong show, right? Remember watching that as a, as a boy and you get the wrong answer, you hear this loud gong. It's just an annoying sound to the ear. It's not the pleasant one of a symphony, but just the annoying gong. You want to get away from it. And then you hear, see this, this uh, phrase, a clanging cymbal. What comes to your mind when you think of that? Well, I often think sometimes when my children were younger and they would get these toys and clang them and bang them together and you're trying to be in a quiet environment and they're banging them and it's, it's like we either have to get them out of the environment or we have to take it away from them. You just don't want to hear clanging cymbals. It's annoying to the, to the ears. But we need to ask a further question here. Who is annoyed in the text by the sound of the voice of one who speaks without love? Is it the audience? Can you automatically tell when someone is speaking to you without genuine love? Can you look into the hearts of someone? No, you can't. Being irritated or not being irritated by the sound of someone's voice or by someone's teaching is not an indicator of their motives. So again, what is the answer? Who is annoyed at the voice, the very voice of one who speaks without love? The answer is God. We can say all the right things. We can be powerful preachers and teachers and counselors and disciplers. You can be the most popular preacher in the country. You get invited to all these conferences and speak. But if you do it for the wrong motives, think about this, the very sound of your voice is annoying to God, like that clanging cymbal or that gong. So Paul is asking the Corinthians, and he's asking us, why do you love that gift of speech so much? And he, I think he wants us to pause, and don't just think about the spiritual answer, but why? Look into your heart. Give an honest answer. So how should the Corinthians have used tongues in the first century? And now that we believe that tongues has ceased, how does God want us to use our powers of speech and oratory and rhetoric? All of that is to be used, brothers and sisters, as a tool. The way that God has gifted you and your ability to speak, He wants you to use that as a tool, not to draw attention to yourself, but to draw attention to the Word of God so that people can be built up. And if you do it for any other reason, that is sin because love does not seek its own. So that is the first public aspect of your ministry that you may do very well at and people may applaud you for it, but if you do it without love, it is an offense to God. The second is your intellect. Your intellect. Notice verse 2 again. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith to, as, to remove mountains, but knew, do not have love, I am nothing. Now notice again all of the gifts that Paul is mentioning here. What are they? Prophecy. All mysteries. Not just knowledge, but all knowledge. And faith so strong that you would be able to do what? You could say to this mountain, move from here to here, and the mountain would obey your voice. Do you think that Paul is continuing hyperbole? Yes, from the tongues of angels, hyperbole to moving 
mountains and knowing all knowledge, all wisdom, all prophecy. He's really bumping it up a notch now. Now, what does he talk about? This primary gift of prophecy. In chapter 13, verse 28, Paul says that prophecy is only second in importance to apostleship. So this is an absolutely critical gift in the early church. You just imagine, you know, I love teaching church history, and sometimes people say, well, wouldn't it be wonderful to be in the first century? The church is more pure and, and all those things. And I say, like, no, you don't. You don't want to be in the early church. You don't have what you have in your hands right now in the first century. The books of the Bible are still being written. Just imagine all the questions that you would have if you didn't have the complete New Testament in your hands. So many questions that you wouldn't know. And then you're evaluating, is this a true prophet, a false prophet? Is this genuine tongues or is it not genuine tongues? A lot of uncertainty there. And so what God did was gift the early church with genuine prophets that can come and speak to the people while the New Testament is being written and disseminated and copied and disseminated. An absolutely critical gift in the early church. But here's another question for you. If you're in the early church and you were a prophet, does that mean that you know everything? Does that mean that you have the answers to every question? I think we look at the Old Testament through the New Testament, and we see that's not the case. No, the prophets didn't know everything. They knew exactly what God wanted them to know and communicated that. So that's why I think in verse 2, Paul continues on this knowledge intellect journey. He says not just prophecy, but you know, have all understanding and mysteries and all knowledge. This is covering all the knowledge bases here. And not only that, you'd have such great faith that you could say to a mountain, move, and it moves. Now, this imagery of moving mountains should bring to your memory the Gospels, where Jesus is talking to the disciples. You remember that story? Where the disciples could not cast out a demon in a man, and this is in Matthew 17. Listen to verse 20, what Jesus says to them. You couldn't remove it because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Why do you think Paul is raising this imagery here from the Gospels into his letter? Think about what he's doing. Okay, imagine if you had prophecy, you have knowledge, you know all mysteries, but not only that, but you could do something that the disciples couldn't do, the disciples that walked with Jesus, that you would have greater faith than they do. He's wanting us to build ourselves up to this high opinion of ourselves. Just think about how much attention and admiration and respect that you would have because of intellect and faith. Yet, if you were to uh, receive applause from men because of these things, there would be none from God if you do those things without the motive of love. What does verse 2 say you would be? Before God... You're nothing. I think how, how we live in a politically correct culture, don't we? How offensive that is. And maybe growing up, you had someone tell you that in school. Like, you're nothing. You're, you're a nobody. And that's very offensive. Uh, it causes us to weep when people say mean things to us that way. But here in this text, we, we need to understand that it's, it's God warning us about this. That if, if you use your intellect... Without love, God is telling you, you're a nobody. You can have the best content in preaching. 
and teaching and counseling, discipling. You could have numerous followers on social media just hanging on your every word and you can be published and all of these things because of your insight and intellect into the scripture. But if you're doing it without love, God's saying, you are, you're a nobody. Yes, people are applauding you, but I'm not. Why do men do that? Or women do that as well. How can you do that? Many people do it to promote themselves, to make money, to make a name for yourself. Some people love just the act of preaching or teaching or counseling disciple itself. It makes them feel good about themselves. Advance your brand. Get invited as a guest speaker. We could go on and on and on. But God still gives us this warning of being nobodies. It's not even being less of what you could be. It's nothing. So we need to understand that a full head plus an empty heart equals nothing. We would be spiritual zeros before the Lord. These are hard words. And so we need to ask ourselves, as the Corinthians did, how would God have us to use our gifts of intellect and the measure of faith that we have been granted? God wants you to use all of your giftedness in your mind, your intellect, your reasoning skills, your logic, uh, penetrating into the text of Scripture to draw out wonderful things. Not to draw attention to yourself, but you're using those gifts that God has given you to draw attention to Scriptures so that, and here's the purpose statement, so that the church can be built up. What does knowledge do? It puffs up. But as we've already seen, love builds up. So we've seen speech, we've seen intellect. The third point this morning is your sacrifice. Your sacrifice. Verse three, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. This is Paul's grand climax to everything that he's been building up here. And he gives us no room to think that radical, sacrificial service taken in God's name automatically means that you have pure motives. It doesn't. First, he mentions feeding the poor. Yet without love, you can completely empty your bank account and give to the poor, but it's not pleasing to the Lord. Well, why is that? Because whether you keep it for yourself or you give it all away, what's your primary motive? You're doing it for yourself anyway. Men, women do that for recognition, to give away all that they have. Some try to do it to earn salvation. Others for making it feel good about themselves. Throughout church history, you see people trying to earn salvation by becoming ascetics, living in a monastery or in the desert or in a cave. This is what in church history we call green martyrdom. The Pharisees made a great show of giving, clanging in their hands and their pockets the money that they're going to, to give. And yes, the text does say they, they receive. Jesus said they receive applause from men, but that's all they get. There, there's no applause from God. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. Did they give? They sold property, a lot of money, but they lied about it, and God took their lives. That's how serious this is, isn't it? What about the act of supreme sacrifice, giving your life for the gospel, giving your life for God? 
This is what we call red martyrdom. In the first few centuries, we see that uh, men eagerly ran to the Colosseum, tried to die for their faith because they believed falsely that dying for your faith is a final kind of red martyrdom, a final baptism in your own blood to take away your own sins. Obviously, as we already mentioned today, that is a false gospel. The gospel, the good news, depends on Christ's work and removing not some, but all of our sin. I think you can also apply this principle to missionaries throughout church history. Having a wrong view of missions, people have gone out and crossed not only country, state lines, crossed oceans with the hope that they would earn their salvation. This is called white martyrdom. Many of you know the story of John Wesley, one of the founders of Methodism with Whitfield. And early in his life, he traveled from England to the state of Georgia in the United States. And this is what he said about that trip. He said, our end in leaving our native country was not to avoid want, but singly this, to save our souls. Did he understand the gospel at that point in his life? Absolutely not. And so you see, when we examine our motives, and people that write throughout church history, they explain their motives for doing what they do. It's outwardly good, but inwardly it is not. We see many ugly things. All acts of love, brothers and sisters, naturally involve self-sacrifice. But not all acts of self-sacrifice necessarily involve love. Let me say that one more time. All acts of biblical love will involve self-sacrifice, but not all acts of self-sacrifice naturally is done with pure motives out of love. In the case of poverty and martyrdom, what does verse 3 say is the effect, if they're done without love? It profits you nothing. Now, the question you might ask, is that an earthly profit? Are we talking about eternal profit? Well, imagine if you give away everything that you have or you die, you're not looking for an earthly profit. This is eternal rewards. This is the kind of sifting, or in the language of 1 Corinthians 3, the, the passing of your works as it were through fire to see what remains because it is done out of love for God or love for neighbor. And if it is done for self, ultimately, there is no reward from God. And so you miss out on rewards from the Lord. This is a sobering warning for us, isn't it? We can do many outward great things for God, but that doesn't mean that we inwardly do great things for God. Thinking about church history, you could have the golden tongue of Chrysostom in preaching. You can have the strong lungs of Spurgeon in opening the Word of God and his eloquence. That doesn't make you spiritual. You could have the intellect of an Augustine or Calvin or Edwards, but that doesn't mean that your motives are pure. You may even give your life to the truth, as did Tyndale and Polycarp and Jim Elliott and many others, but that is not a clear indicator of the true intent of your heart. God may even choose to work through you for the salvation of others and even to bring revival to others. But that may not be a true indicator of your heart as well. Think about what happened in Nineveh, right? In other words, when you think about motives, because the Corinthians spoke in tongues, 
is no more an indicator of their spirituality than Balaam's donkey, who also spoke in tongues. Listen closely. Giftedness is not synonymous with godliness. Giftedness is not synonymous with godliness. And this is why we see in contemporary evangelicalism over the past few decades, many men very gifted in preaching and oratory and personal skills and just charismatic behind the pulpit and and all those things and alpha males being sought to lead and grow churches fall and fall hard and destroy their churches. Why is that? Because their character does not match their giftedness. The book of Proverbs tells us the Lord tests the heart. God cares about the secrets of your heart, why you do what you do. The Lord weighs the heart. The Lord will disclose the purposes of the heart on judgment day. And so we need to be very careful, not morbidly introspection, but to consider why are we doing what we're doing? Namely, do I do what I do for personal benefit and gain, or do I sacrifice for others? Or do I do it for my reputation? Do I, do I have if-then conditions behind my service, even in this church? Or if someone offends me, am I going to stop serving because my feelings are hurt? Well, no, you can endure that. And you can still keep serving out of love for God and for those that maybe, in, maybe even offend you. And do you do those things with affection or you do, do it begrudgingly? Like, I know I have to do this. I'm called to do this. I'm just going to bite down on my mouthpiece and muscle through it and get it done because it has to be done. That doesn't please the Lord. So we want to have a joyful affection, even when it means you, you give up what you want for the good of another. I think a good test that maybe would be helpful for us to think about is even online media. So many of us are a part of that. We see a lot of Christians involved in online media. Are we showing love to a dying world and love to our brothers and sisters that are watching what we are putting online? Whether you realize it or not, you're teaching people online. You're discipling and counseling people online. They are imitating. They could imitate your example for the good or the bad. And so we need to ask ourselves what we are putting online. Is it done with a motive to glorify God out of love for him and to build up our brothers and sisters in love? Are we causing people to be built up or are we tearing people down? By what we put online, are we causing our brothers and sisters to become more content or discontent in difficult times? Are we putting things online that adorn the gospel or that will cause people to curse Christ? We don't just speak the truth. We speak the truth in love. And so these are all weighty matters. This is a serious sermon, right? Paul is, is telling us very hard things to hear, that if you don't do this, you're a nothing. You're a horrible sound in the eyes of God. There's no profit for you. But oftentimes in Scripture, we see that following difficult words, there is encouragement. There is further explanation. Because Paul doesn't just stop there. Because we want to know, Paul, if this is so serious, you've got to tell me more about what love is so I can be faithful in these things. And that's exactly what Paul does. Notice verses 4 through 7. We're not going to make any commentary. I just want to read through this. This is the explanation of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly or rude. It does not seek its own. 
It's not easily provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. In other words, you're not making lists against someone. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all these things. As you think about these words in the coming week, I encourage you to memorize verses four through seven. These are like bullets in your gun as you're going throughout your day to keep going through these things and really saturate your mind with the Word of God to be those characterized by love. If you are a musician, sing it, score it. Uh, It's great to sing songs throughout the day, particularly as you're singing Scripture. If you're an artist, uh, put it on a canvas to remember it, to put it on your wall. Memorize it. Most of all, let us live this to the glory of God for the building up of His church. Because Paul has said, all things are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Elsewhere, Paul says, increase and abound in love. In other words, don't be satisfied with your current level of love. You can do even more. So you need to to think strategically about that. Paul concludes this very letter, 1 Corinthians, by this. Let all that you do be done in love. That's comprehensive. I appreciate Travis reading this morning from uh, the epistles of John. If you look at church history, church history tells us what the final words of the apostle John were. As he lay dying, he said, little children love one another. Let's pray about these things. Father, we recognize that we are unable in and of ourselves to do these things, that apart from you, we can truly do nothing. And so we beg for your help, that you convict us of our sins, help us to see things in our actions, in our hearts that perhaps we have never seen, our motives for doing what we have done. It may appear like we are serving our husbands or our wives or our children or the pastors or brothers and sisters in the church, but in reality, we're really serving ourselves. Father, grant us humility to think lowly of ourselves, as Christ was the perfect picture of humility, considering others more important than himself. So help us then to die to ourselves out of love for you, out of love for our brothers and sisters. And because of that, may we be a witness to a dying world that sees that we are different and then asks, what makes a Christian different? Other open avenues for the gospel because of faithfulness in these things, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.